0: You're listening to the Stephen Wolfram Podcast, an exploration of thoughts and ideas from the founder and CEO of Wolfram Research, creator of Wolfram Alpha, and the Wolfram Language. In this ongoing Q&A series, Stephen answers questions from his live stream audience about science and technology. This session was originally broadcast on September 4th, 2020. Let's have a listen. Hi. Okay. Welcome to another episode of Science and Technology Q&A for kids and others. I think we have a number of questions left over from last week. Um, Let me see. There's a question from Icy. What is my opinion of the usability and programmability of current computers in comparison to ones I've used in my life? Do I have wishes for future computers? Well, okay. So I'm an old guy and I've been using computers for a long time. I first saw a computer when I was about 10 years old which is around 1970 and um the first computer that I saw I barely saw it it was in a room sort of uh uh kind of tucked away and it had lots of those uh you know spinning tape drive thingies that you see in old movies and so on and uh Uh, there were only very special humans that were allowed to go anywhere near the computer. That was a a big mainframe computer. Then then, um, the first computer that I actually used myself was in 1972 um, when I was 12 years old. And that computer was um, about the size of a large desk. And um, I was fortunate that the school that I was at um, happened to have managed to get this computer, actually, one of the teachers there uh, had been a friend of Alan Turing's. Alan Turing was a big pioneer of computing, and somehow through that connection, they managed to get this computer. It was a computer that uh, you can probably find on the web. It was called an Elliot 903C, made by a company called Elliot Brothers, which I can assure you is no longer... A, uh, a computer company. It was actually had been a scientific instrument maker in the late 1800s. And they had got themselves into computers um, in some collaboration with a company called Marconi. Marconi was a company that uh, was started by the chap who first commercialized radio back around 1900 or so. Um, but anyway, they, there was this computer and um, uh, it was a computer about the size of a desk. It um, it had um, uh, eight, Uh, 8,000 words of memory. So modern computers, uh, usually they measure their memory in bytes, which is eight binary bits. And um, usually a word on a modern computer is 64 bits or eight bytes. Um, That's that's sort of the basic unit of storage that uh, is used in programs. Um, The the computer that I used had um, 8,000 words uh, so modern computers like the, the random laptop will probably have um, um, at least a few gigabytes of memory. And, you know, if it's a, it's a really big, crunchy computer, it will be hundreds of gigabytes. That's um, uh, so that would be in, in, in terms of words, that might be, um, uh, well, let's say a billion words of um, a memory. The computer that I first used had 8,000 words of, of, of memory. And somewhat exotically, it had 18-bit words. So normally, these days, you know, uh, computer memory is the, the sort of smallest unit people care about is bytes, which is eight bits. Um, and as I say, words are usually 64 bits now. Um, the computer I used happened to have rather exotically been engineered with 18-bit uh, words. Um, and uh, you know, how did you get a program into the computer? Well, uh, you used um, uh, usually paper tape. Actually, I might even have one of those paper tapes. Now you see, this is one of these. Can I? You know what? This is very convenient. Well, this is a this is an actual prop. There we go. There's an actual paper tape from um, uh, from the first computer that I used, and it's um, you can see it has little holes punched in it. Maybe you can see. There you go. You can see it has little holes punched in it, and those um, uh, those represent the program. How did you read this paper tape? Well, there were two ways. One was you could put it in a device that would have little little pins, and the tape would be moved through, uh, and, the, and the pins would be pushed up where there were where there are holes, and not pushed up where there aren't holes. And that's the way it would be read. The better way to read it was an optical reader, where you'd have a, a light that shone, shone through it, and you'd have a photoelectric cell that would. Um, uh, would be on when the light shone through one when, uh, uh, when when there was a hole there and off when it wasn't and it would it would go pretty fast it would go zipping through the the, um, the reader one of the big skills in those days was that the, the tape when it had gone through the reader would end up in this big wooden bin and then you would have to rewind the tape by putting it on some some winder thing and turn it around and the trick was don't tear the tape when you rewind the tape um, Anyway, this is, a, this is a program that I wrote for that computer. Um, it's written in uh, very low level, well, it's written in uh, assembler, um, uh, essentially the, the intrinsic code of the machine. So that, that machine had uh, 16 instructions. So at the, at the lowest level in most computers, like your average, um, I don't know, Mac or PC or whatever, um, the, the lowest level instructions that go into the, the CPU, the, typically, into the ALU part of the CPU of the computer, there'll be a few hundred kinds of instructions that say things like, uh, load this thing into this location in memory, add these two numbers together, do this, do that, do the other thing. So the, the computer that that uh, that used this paper tape had 16 instructions, and um, they they had literally numbers. Like the four instruction was load the accumulator of the computer which was a, a register in the in the uh, a place where you could so you could say and now this is outrageous that i can still remember all of this stuff but you could say things like four plus zero meant load zero into this register in the cpu of the computer or you could say um let's see uh, a six instruction was a subtract and a um uh well uh, um I, I, if you said uh, anyway, it had a bunch of these instructions. I, I think it would be too weird and boring to tell you what they all were. And the fact is, I don't think I've thought about them in in um, in solidly forty-five years. So, um, uh, um, but I think I can remember them all. Um, anyway, that was that was my my first computer. It actually ran comparatively fast. It was like a a, a um, every instruction took about a microsecond to run. Um, millionth of a second to run had a nice feature the computer had a nice feature that it actually made a sound when it ran and so you could tell what it was doing it would go you know it would you would you would you could you could like hear the program running and when when the program ran into it was in some tight loop where it was just keeping on running the same instructions it would have this high-pitched whine when it was doing more complicated things it would have different sounds that's one of the features that's gone missing in the intervening years but anyway that was that was my very first computer um i then Uh, most of the kind of serious computers people used in those days were not computers that a mere human could walk up to and do things with. They were mostly uh, only touched by sort of specialists in, in sort of uh, tending the computer. It was a very kind of, um, it's like, uh, like, like kind of imagine in, in ancient Greece or something, the people, the priests in the temple type thing um, were the only ones who were actually allowed to touch the computer. And I think, um, uh, the um, the thing that, um, um, that the computer, the Elliott nine hundred three computer that that I used, um, I think its its main use was in um, I think it was used in tanks and things like that. It was used in um, various military applications. Uh, it was not a particularly particularly successful line of computers. But um, uh, then within a few years, I I started using uh, kind of bigger computers. Uh, so-called mainframe computers, usually IBM 360-type computers. That was a computer family that had arisen in the 1960s and um, had, uh, was sort of the dominant kind of computer that people used for serious computations. The shocking fact is there are companies that wrote programs for IBM mainframes in the 1960s, and those same programs are still running today, and sometimes they've been running without stopping. And the companies that do, for example, things like credit card transaction processing and things, but they've been running the same program since that time, and they go to tremendous trouble to have the computer never stop, because if it stops, you can't settle the transactions or whatever else. So it's kind of a weird thing. But but those those kinds of computers, uh, the, um, the typical mode of interacting, for example, when I was like 16 years old or something, 1976, I worked at a... Government lab in England, which had a, uh, a place called the Rutherford Lab, which had a, a big computer, lots of big computers actually, and the mode of interacting with them was you would write your program on cards. Um, you would so the cards were that instead of this paper tape, which has which has holes punched in it, and, the, and uh, a card. I'm, I'm sure I have a card somewhere, but I don't think I can find it immediately. Um, the uh, uh, the cards would be um, you you have a card punch machine, and you would type what you needed for the on the on on each card and it would come out in holes in the card and each card was 80 characters um across 80 columns across and that's why sometimes when you see in modern computers things are 80 characters that comes because of cards um but anyway you would you would type a card and you press a button and the card would get sort of taken out of the machine and put in a big pile of cards and so your program will be a big pile of cards and then you would uh the way it worked um, you would sort of hand put your cards in this pigeonhole, wooden pigeonhole type thing, and then somebody would go from the other side, from the kind of computer side. They would take your cards, and they would somehow magically run your program on the computer, and then they would give you back a printout, uh, you know, uh, printed by on 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 paper by the computer, and put it back in your pigeonhole. And that was the um, that was the main mode of interacting with the computer. And if you were lucky, that process would take I don't know. Half an hour, an hour, a couple of hours, something like that. If there was a bug in your program, it was very frustrating because there would be a whole long cycle of getting um, uh, of getting that um, that done again. And I think the um, um, it was uh, so that was sort of a, a typical mode of interaction with computers as you you hand it to the druids or something that actually dealt with the computer. I'm not sure if they were still wearing white coats at that time, but they might have been. Um, and uh, they would sort of run your program and then uh, get it back to you. Actually by the next year, um, 1977, I I worked at a US government lab um, and uh, that was a time when I guess for some reason they actually trusted the scientists to be near the mainframe computer. And so that was a case where that was again, an IBM 370, I think, computer. where you could actually, you, like me, could actually be with the computer in the same room, and you could, uh, like, feed the cards in yourself, and, you know, there were all these flashing lights and tapes and things like that, um, but uh, you could actually sort of interact directly with the computer, and, and and the debugging cycle got a lot shorter at that time, although my, my all-time favorite of, of, um, of that was that, um, you know, you would get, you would, you put your, your cards in, you would run your program, something would come back, and there would usually be these error codes if there was something wrong. And um, I remember there was one, I think it was IEH0321, something. I, I'm making up those numbers slightly, but it's roughly that. Um, and it's like, what is this error? And uh, there was these big manuals, big books of you know error codes for the computer. And so I look it up, I look it up, and there's all these pages and pages of error codes and all kinds of things. Finally get to the error code that I had. And what did it say? It had only three words: probable user error. What on earth were all the other errors? Well, they were all things that might have gone wrong with the computer, not things that were probable user error, like your code is wrong. Um, so anyway, that was a that's. I sometimes use that as an example for people writing uh, software documentation of of a of a very unhelpful kind of thing to have happen. In any case, the the. Um, uh, I think at that time it still was the case that the majority that the the results of um, of your computing were on paper. They were printed by a line printer. Line printer just meant that it was printing a whole line of characters at a time. Um, Chunk, 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 chunk. Big um, uh, machine that just printed these on this paper. I'm sure I've got a sample of it someplace here. Um, That uh, and and so those were the results. Now, um, you know then. Gosh, I'm telling you a whole history of my um, sort of story with computers, but, but um, maybe for some people who are perhaps younger, that's like there were computers before the way they are today. Um, I think that, um, uh, well, for me, the, um, the, the next sort of big step over these things called mini computers, a mini computer cost only in those days, probably 19, late 1970s, only a quarter million dollars. Um, and as opposed to which in today's money would be, I don't know, million dollars maybe. Um, and, uh, uh, it was only the size of, I don't know, uh, um, several large desks usually built up a lot higher. Um, and, uh, usually those, um, and so I, I first, um, had, uh, kind of very direct access kind of. Was sort of responsible for one of those machines back in probably 1979 1980 that was a, a vax 11780 made by a company called digital equipment corporation or DEC, which at the time was the world's second largest computer company um and uh, after ibm um and i'm afraid you know it's it's a sad feature of the of the world of technology and commerce that i'm not sure most people have ever heard of DEC anymore um and i know uh their headquarters were near where I live in, in Massachusetts. Uh, they were in a town called Maynard, Massachusetts. And uh, it was a few years ago that they had a giant factory thing there and it was demolished. So it was, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a, it, the story, that story is gone. But um, the, the next sort of big thing that happened, um, when for that computer, for example, the, um, oh yeah, actually, I, I forget. Even 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 when I was using the computer at the Rutherford Lab, they had these things called, which used to be called VDUs, visual display units, which meant instead of always just typing your stuff on cards, you could actually have a visual display of your programs and other things interacting with the computer. And you could use a time-shared computer system, which meant that it's kind of like the cloud today. It meant that instead of you just, Writing your programs sort of offline, you would um, you, know, you would write them as um, um, uh, you would you would do things where you used a text editor and you typed um, uh, you, you typed onto this uh, with files which could be displayed on this on this visual display unit. Um, And and usually those were 80 characters across by 24 characters down, and they had individual characters. It wasn't like uh, the the modern displays, bitmap displays, where every pixel can be separately colored, red or green or whatever. These were just, there was, uh, it was uh, made with a a, a CRT, um, uh, like an old fashioned television, and the electron beam in the thing went, it was a big thing and the electron beam would go uh, from the the uh, source at the back, and eventually it would hit the screen and and light up the screen. And the the uh, the pattern in which it would light up the screen was determined by whether the electron beam had been routed through the so-called character. Uh, basically, they would have a, a mask where they look have the shapes of the characters there. And depending on where the beam was set, it would go through the place where there was an A. Uh, sort of template or a B template or whatever, and then be, be sent to the screen. And that's how it would generate all the characters on the screen. Um, anyway, so that was that was kind of the um uh the mechanism. And, and there were these starting to be these time-shared operating systems where lots of people could connect to the same computer and um you could you could do these things um uh, interactively like that. In fact, I for for a long time I I um uh by by the late 1970s I I was in the US and um Uh, I used to use that VAX 11780. And I was usually, um, uh, because you could have this this, uh, terminal um, sort of separated from the computer, uh, one thing you could do was, uh, you know, just take the terminal home and connect to the computer. How did you connect to the computer? Well, you connected through phone lines. How did you connect to the phone lines used an acoustic coupled modem? So what that meant was, you know, the phone is used to sending voice and so on but it had been figured out how to send, you know, weird tones and so on that represented the data that you were trying to send from the computer. But the technology was, you literally, you took a phone, the handset phone with a big, you know, big old fashioned, you know, wired phone with a big handset and you literally take the handset and put it into this object that had these rubber cups where, you know, there was the speaker speaker and the microphone were you know put into those two rubber cups and if you pulled the thing out just a little bit you could hear it whistling at um you could hear the computer sending data receiving data by by making different whistling sounds and usually that was going at about 30 characters per second was uh, was a typical speed and then it increased to about um uh what was it about 100 characters a second um so actually i was very impressed with the american phone system because i i um I connected one of those, and I, I just left it connected for like six months, um, you know, at my, at my house, and and just just uh, you know had had the thing connected to the acoustic couple modem, and it didn't drop any bits. It was it was just sat there, um, and uh, you know I, I don't know maybe I did something terrible to the phone system by doing that, but um, uh, it um, it seemed to work rather well. But anyway, then, then after that, kind of the next evolution was, um, well, actually, my first company uh, was a software company started in 1981. Um, uh, one, of the, one of the goofy things that was done by the management that I brought in was um, they had the idea, gosh, our software has a hard time running on the current generation of hardware. We'll, um, uh, you know, we'll build our own hardware to be able to run the software. And I was like, this is a very bad idea. Um, there were all kinds of reasons why that was very difficult, but it just so happened at that time, I happened to have visited uh, Stanford University once and I, the chap um, uh, shows me this this computer in kind of a cardboard box that is a, was called the Stanford University Network computer, S-U-N computer. Um, a, uh, subsequently became called the Sun Workstation. There was a company called Sun that is now uh, uh, part of Oracle um, that, um, Uh, sort of pioneered this idea of so-called workstation computers, which were intended to be things that were used by a single person as kind of a, you know, a thing that they would actually do computations right there, uh, you know, for themselves, so to speak, on their own computer rather than sending it to some central computer. Um, And they also had bitmap displays, that is displays where um, you could put arbitrary uh, pixels on on the screen and so on. And that um, those sort of came into existence by maybe 1983, 84-ish. There are a number of companies that sort of competed in that market. I mean, meanwhile, there were personal computers. Um, the uh, the Apple II had come out in 1978 or so, even I think. Um, then um, uh, then the PC came out, um, and uh, um, then the the Mac came out in 1984, famously. Um, and uh, but those computers, for me as a kind of a user of, of sort of more serious um, computing things, I, I, I never really used those kinds of computers. I used, um, uh, I tried to get portable computers. There was a company called Compaq, uh, I think now part of Dell, um, that made a very early um, uh, portable computer. Um, it was, uh, no, actually the very first one I, I had was made by a company called Osborne. There was a computer called the Osborne One. It was about the size of a small suitcase and you could, uh, but it was portable. You could pick it up, you could carry it around. It was kind of an interesting adventure, carrying it through Los Angeles International Airport. as probably one of the first portable computers that had been seen on an x-ray machine. Um, it was also uh, interesting um, uh, figuring out that, uh, like if you flew on a 747 plane, there was, a, there was an outlet right at the back of the plane. It was just one outlet where you could plug the computer in because it didn't have batteries. It took way too much power. But that computer, for example, was um, used floppy disks, um, and uh, it used um, uh, an operating system called CPM, which was a rather primitive operating system. Um, and uh, really, you could do a little bit of word processing on it, but that was about all that I could use it for. Um, and uh, anyway, I'm, I think I'm giving a very long answer to this this question. But um, uh, you know, by by some time in, um, uh, in the in the in the uh, early 80s I was kind of using these workstation computers and and honestly the fundamentally the configuration of, of what's sort of on my desk isn't much different I mean the screen's gotten bigger um, the computer's gotten faster at least it did for a while um, the uh, uh, the operating system has gotten sort of smoother but the idea of having windows on a screen and so on you know I was already using those kinds of things by by the uh, early 1980s um, And, uh, you know, sometimes I would, uh, all these ideas, like when I first saw, I think probably around 1979, 1980, I first seeing the idea of windows on a screen. It's like, you can't be serious. There are situations where you're trying to get a file from here to there, where you're trying to drag it from one part of the screen to the other, and another window is obscuring it and, you know you're not going to be able to do it and you have to move these windows like a physical thing to be able to move these files and i thought this is just going to be a killer miss feature but it's turned out well it's kind of annoying every time i every time that happens to me of the sort of i just can't drag the file because the drag location the you know drag destination is, is obscured on the screen i kind of think back to the fact that i thought this was never going to work at all but it's obviously worked much better than we expected but back in those days um you know i could talk a little bit about how one program computers in those days um, uh, you know, first, well, uh, you know, the, the, but the main conclusion was that I needed to build my own tools for, for using computers. And that's kind of what got me started on building computer languages and computational languages and, and all these kinds of things. Um, I can, uh, um, uh, can talk about that more, but, but maybe I should, um, um, uh, uh, well, I, I mean, I should say that it's always interesting, you know, when you've sort of been around the computer industry and computer technology for a long time, it is amusing the extent to which people say, oh my gosh, there's this new thing. We're now doing this. And it's like, actually, that was something everybody did 25 years ago. You've just forgotten. So for example, the move to cloud computing is is just the same story as the whole time sharing story from back, um, uh, back in the distant past. Um, and... Um, it's uh, uh, an even, you know, for example, I first had email in 1976 um, and um, there were computer networks. I used to use the ARPANET, which is a, early, a predecessor of the internet, and I used that starting in 1976. There were only, whatever, 256 computers on the ARPANET on the at that time, um, and each one had a number and so on. But it was still sort of the same idea as today. But this this trend between sort of are you going to do it locally? Are you going to do your computing locally on your local machine, or are you going to do it on a, on a big distant machine? That trend has been going back and forth for at least 50 years. Um, of you know, is it is it local? Is it remote? And and it's really a question of the relative, uh, you know, how fast is the computer? How fast is the communication channel? How much stuff are you trying to send back and forth? How well can you predict what has to be sent? You know, if it's a movie, you kind of know in advance, you're going to watch the next five minutes. So you might as well preload that and so on. um, Those kinds of things. Um, You know, it's always interesting to see these different styles of computing that become popular. um, And I think, uh, uh, you know, everybody's been waiting for virtual reality and augmented reality and so on. I remember first seeing, I first probably used a VR system, probably late 1980s. And everybody said it's almost here. You know, something where you can, uh, where you can kind of see the, um, uh, you have s- head-mounted display and so on, and you can kind of get a realistic view of the visual scene. Um, well, it's still not here now. You know, will that be a way that I choose to use computers? You know, I have to say, apart from the fact that I have tried using VR for, for some of the things I've been doing in our physics project, I get a little bit. Um, I still get a little bit seasick, motion sick or something when I use these things um that will probably improve as as some of the tracking gets better um for for those kinds of devices but but you know it will be an interesting time when there's a very different way to to write programs and so on that's a really different environment from the one that basically i've been using since since the early 1980s of you know windows on a screen etc um and uh, you know i've been trying to build um uh, sort of computational language that brings us to a much higher level of, of what we can expect to do in interacting with the computer hasn't really affected the, um, it's affected greatly what I say to the computer, but not kind of how I say it in terms of of typing things in and, and so on. Probably m- much more to say about that, but let me, I, I want to get to some more of these um, these questions here. Boy, there's a question from Pranjul here. How can we fix the shortcomings of current neural net architectures. Well, gosh. So first point is, you know, there's this whole area of machine learning, which has become very popular in the last few years. I would say that it it really started to become super popular around 2012. Um, And I think it's probably its popularity is a little bit, you know, it's it's flattened off at this point. Um, And there are lots of kinds of things where people said, you'll never be able to get a computer to do that. Like recognize, you know, what kind of bird am I showing you a picture of? and then that's now become pretty easy. How did that work? Well, the way it works is you're using mostly these things called neural nets, and what you're doing is you're showing it a whole bunch of pictures of this kind of bird, a whole bunch of pictures of that kind of bird, and it's kind of learning uh, what these different kinds of birds look like, and then when you show it a new picture of a bird, it's saying that looks like this thing that I learned before. How does that learning work? What's happening is you're basically trying to translate your, those pictures. Initially, get translated into a big array of numbers. Each picture, they're kind of like just the the colors of the pixels on the screen that represent that that picture. And then what you're doing is you're figuring out how to kind of um, how how to uh, if you if you look at all the arrays of numbers that represent a um, an eagle, for example, and all the arrays of numbers that represent a swallow, you're um, uh, you're going to um, um, what you've got to do is to figure out what's in common between the arrays of numbers that represent eagles and different from what represents i don't know a, a parrot let's say um and uh, uh there's a, a fairly efficient method that's now known to uh to try and figure that out and it's based on neural networks neural networks were sort of loosely based on the way brains do things you know in our brains we've got about uh, 100 billion neurons neurons are these these cells in our brain that uh, basically they either fire and produce an electrical signal every millisecond or every few, few thousand times a second, or they don't. And they're, they're like either on or off, more or less. They, they have these spike trains that they produce, but roughly you can say, are they on or are they off? And every neuron might be connected to let's say a hundred or even a thousand other neurons. And it's saying, were you on, were you off? And it's looking at the pattern of which other neurons that it's connected to were on and off and then it's deciding, am I gonna be on on the next, uh, the next moment or not? And that's kind of how our brains work. And, and neurons were originally discovered by um, a microscopist named Romano Cajal around 1900, um, looking at, uh, actual, um, uh, at actual brains, noticed that there were these cells, these neurons, and it sort of became clear that the brain was this kind of arrangement of, of connected uh, neurons. Then in 1943, I think, Um, a chap called Warren McCulloch and a chap called Walter Pitts um, basically figured out this kind of theoretical mathematical framework to describe how neural networks might work. And the big thing they did was to show that given something that could be thought of as a bunch of these sort of uh, objects that were either on or off and they were connected by sort of wire-like things to other objects that could be on or off, that you could uh, emulate a sort of another mathematical model of a computer, a Turing machine, and, and you could show that this kind of neural net thing could compute anything that this other model of a computer could compute. At the time, there weren't yet digital electronic computers, but as soon as there were, it became clear that these neural net things could be, well, they could be emulated on a digital computer, and they could in principle emulate what a digital computer could do. People were still very confused about whether brains could somehow more do more than digital computers can do, but at least this McCulloch-Pitts model of neural networks was like, mathematically, it was, it's the same story as what a standard computer can do. Well, for a long time, a long, long time, decades, decades, people would use neural nets and they would use them for various toy things. They would study them and they would do science with them. And uh, they would try and compare them with brains and they didn't really compare very well. And they were like, they tried to do things with them and they tried to do early optical character recognition which went fairly well of saying, is that an A, a B or a C when as, as pixels on the screen. And they would try and solve these problems like is that a, an eagle or a parrot and that would fail. Um, and it kept on failing. And back around 1980, I, I did a bunch of work with neural networks actually. And I tried to figure out, you know, what did they do? Could they do anything interesting? And I was like, no, they can't really do anything interesting. Well, then in 2011, sort of almost by mistake, it was realized that a sort of a bigger neural net, if you just let it look at a large number of examples and kind of grind around trying to arrange itself internally and grind around for maybe a month of computer time Magically, somehow, the thing would figure out how to arrange itself so that it could correctly recognize those new examples coming in. And so, suddenly, at that time, the idea of so called deep learning the deep comes from the fact that there are many layers inside this neural net, and they all have to kind of arrange their numbers in order to make the thing work. Um, And it takes a long time to arrange those numbers. You have to go through this whole elaborate training procedure, uh, which can take, you know, sometimes. Uh, years of computer time, although it can be uh, done somewhat in parallel, so it's not uh, not not taking quite as much real time. But it can take it can take huge amounts of time to do that training. But the remarkable thing is that it's turned out that it actually works fairly well. It works fairly well on certain kinds of tasks. Basically, when you have a task where it's not really a super precise thing, it's like: is this an eagle? Is this a parrot? Okay, you know, well, it's kind of a clue that you're showing it in a jungle background. It's more likely to be a parrot. It's kind of a clue that the eagle is next to the, you know, the blue sky, whatever. Oh, it gets it wrong some fraction of the time, but it's getting it more or less right. There are many tasks that we humans do where getting things more or less right is super useful. Um, There are other tasks like, I don't know, doing mathematical computation where to get it only roughly right is kind of useless. Um, there are other tasks, and plenty of tasks where getting it only roughly right is kind of useless. but um uh, but but in any case, it, this sort of getting it roughly right thing and tasks where getting it roughly right is 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 fine. Um, there are lots of them. Image identification is one, uh, voice transcription, that is, you know when you talk to you know your Siri or something or Alexa or something, and um uh, it figures out what did you say and it turns that into text and maybe it sends it on to Wolfram Alpha or something. Um, it, um, <clears throat> uh, that process, if it gets some word wrong occasionally, it's not a disaster. And that's another place where neural networks do very well. Um, similarly, being able to pick things out in videos, that's another kind of place where, where they do very well. These kinds of things where it's like, well, you know, you get it more or less right and that's good enough. They do very well. And, and what's really happened in the last few years is that as things, neural nets get more and more efficient, you can, you know, first you could do single images, then you can do audio, now you would be doing video reasonably well. Um, these things, it, it, that steadily sort of gets better and you figure out more and more tasks where it makes sense to get a result that's roughly right. Now, in terms of, you know, will you be able to do magic things? So so one thing that gets very popular, that they're usually these little bursts of enthusiasm for different kinds of things. So one that's, that's happening right now is text generation. So you can say, you know, write me a story about whatever and it will just go and generate the story. Well, it's kind of okay. But if you really say, if you say, how well did you really do that? You know, what's the way of grading it? You get somebody to say, will this essay get an A, a B or a C if it was graded as, as something you send in to, you know, for school or something. Um, but uh, that's not usually done. And usually it's like, well, it's kind of cool. It kind of looks pretty good but it's really hard to know, you know, did it do great or did it do terribly? And the fact is it's gonna do okay, but I'm not sure that task is a, is a terrific one. There's a, there's a version of that task, which is language translation going from you know, French to English or something um, where, where again, it's like if you get it roughly right, that's good enough. You know, occasionally you're gonna get it wrong, but it's still super useful to even get it roughly right. And and, uh, that's something that's that's uh, kind of gotten to a a pretty good level. Uh, You know, it it, it works better when there's more stuff to train the neural network on. So, for example, for European languages, uh, the European Union for for all of its adventures. One thing that it's done is that whenever there's some sort of uh, government document, it gets translated into all the languages that are used in the European Union. So there are these pieces of text that exist in gazillions of languages, I don't know how many it is, 20 languages or something, is it that many? I don't know, 15, whatever. Um, and that means that when you want, if you want to train a computer to say, I want to translate from German to French, to English, to whatever, um, I wonder if they're going to drop English. Hmm. No, no, I think not. There's still English speaking countries in the EU. Um, but in any case, the, the, um, that allows you to have billions of words of training data for um, uh, for language translation. But um, you know, in, in terms of, of um, uh, what will be the kind of um, the end point of sort of neural net things, people, it's interesting to figure out, you know, if you could do much better training, what could you train the neural net to do? And there are some additional tasks you can imagine doing. But in terms of um, uh, there's some other tasks which have been getting better unbelievably slowly. So one task is uh, conversation. So for instance, back in the 1960s, there was a thing called Eliza, which was a a kind of a uh, sort of fake um, kind of uh, counselor psychiatrist type thing where you would you would type to it and it would say you know you would say um, uh, I don't know it would say you know. Um, what color shirt are you wearing today or something? I'm not sure it would ask those kinds of questions. And it would say, you know, I'm wearing a, we don't even know what color this is, a white shirt. And then it would say, it would be sort of come back and say, does it bother you that you're wearing a white shirt? And it would try and have this kind of conversation. And it used very, very simple rules to do that. People found it kind of fun. And then we kind of go forward, you know, 50 years and we say, well, what do the conversation systems that we have today, what are they able to do? Well, you know, with Wolfman Alpha, we're able to answer all kinds of questions about the real world. That's a, that's a remarkable thing that, that you know wasn't clear it was going to be possible. I mean, we we did that now 10 years ago or more. Um, and you know, by, by you know encoding a lot of knowledge computationally, it's a whole story about how that was done. But um, that's, that's sort of a answer questions about the world. But if it's just like have a nice chat um and and do it in a way that this really seems intelligent, that's still really difficult. Um, you know, one can one can have some things that do a good job at a sort of play level, but um, in terms of really doing it and having having a real conversation with content, that's really pretty hard to do, and that's that's been a thing that hasn't really been achieved yet. Um, I think that um, uh, in terms of the the details of um, how neural nets work inside, I mean, I can go into arbitrary levels of technical detail about that, but let let me not do that. Um, let me say that I think the um, Uh, There are sort of assumptions about how how they work that basically make use of calculus in very fundamental ways that probably are neither necessary nor efficient. And there are probably ways of doing things with, with simpler programs that don't make use of calculus, but they need to make use of new kind of ideas for how you kind of search through a space of programs. And I've sort of worked on those things for years, and we don't really know the answer to how to do that yet. Um, and uh, perhaps we will finally figure that out. In fact, some of the spin-offs from our physics project might be suggesting ideas about how to do that, but we don't know that yet. And that's that's the kind of um, the sort of buzz term. There would be things like cellular automata and connecting those to neural. That's that. There's a very different kind of thing, um, and uh, uh, that that's kind of a a potential future direction. Oh boy, there's a question from Just Noesis. How does hitting a bucket of water on the side with a tennis ball make the water surface splash with plenty of tiny droplets which grow very high, but hitting it with the same force with one's foot makes the water move as a big lump which doesn't splash? Is this analogous to the photoelectric effect? Okay, splashes. Splashes are a complicated thing. There was a chap, a man called Worthington, I think, who had a classic book called The Study of Splashes. And um, that was uh, made possible a splash, happens very quickly. So what made it possible to study this was the invention of flash photography, the invention of, of, uh, you know, you have a camera, it opens its shutter, it's, you know, in in old days it was exposing film, um, but uh, then, you know, bright flash of light, it only picks up an image when there's that bright flash of light. And by, by having that flash of light be very short, period of time, you could like freeze a frame. This is all easy to do now, but it wasn't back in the day. You could freeze a frame for a thousandth of a second or something, you could just capture what happened in a thousandth of a second. So you would see things like, you know, bursting a balloon, you would see the little cracks forming in the the surface of the rubber because you could freeze that frame by having a very quick flash. And that's the only thing the camera would be sensitive to. So back in, I think 1908, as I remember correctly, this chap called Worthington made this study of splashes. So what happens when there's a splash? Drop something in water. You drop a, turns out it matters what shape the thing is that you drop in the water. But let's say you drop a sphere in the water. I think that's the one that's been most studied. You drop a you drop a drop of water in the water. So what does a splash look like? A lot of weird things that happen. So one thing that happens is the water goes down and it produces this kind of um, uh, so-called corona. Looks like a crown. You, you get this circle of water and there's a circle and around, so in the, in the middle, the thing you know, hits the water in the middle, and the water comes up around the sides. And the water seems like it's just coming up in this film in this kind of crater-like thing that's just uniformly coming up on each side, but it doesn't do that. Instead, the water, which would usually be just this, this, this circle of water, it breaks up um, into, into, little, into little drops and it forms this kind of crown-like shape where you see the little drops forming around the thing. So you might have 10 drops around the circumference of the circle, um, a so-called corona um, uh, effect. And um, so that's that's one weird thing. The other weird thing that happens is right in the center of the water, the water's come down, and then the water comes back up. It kind of bounces back. And you'll have this kind of tube of water that comes up. And you'll actually often have a little drop at the top of that tube. It's as if, as if the drop, the thing you dropped in had bounced back and made a drop of water. Very weird effects. Okay, what causes these effects? So the main effect um, that causes the the sort of thing that would otherwise be kind of a a regular sort of circle or cylinder of water on the outside to break into this sort of crown, uh, what are they called, the the things on a crown. Um, What are they called, my gosh. uh, anyway, the, 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 the points on the crown, so to speak, um, the, um, coronets. No, that's not right. I don't know. In any case, the, um, not a word that I use very often. Um, in any case, the, the, um, uh, so-called Rayleigh-Taylor instability that causes, um, the, uh, uh, that causes the causes thing to break up. Why does it break up? So it breaks up because of a phenomenon called surface tension and, um, so, okay, w- what's the story here? So if you have something like water, water has a certain, the, the surface of the water will always try to be as, as small an area of, as possible. So if you have a, a blob of water, let's say you're in the, in, the, in the space station where things are weightless, so water doesn't fall to the ground, just get some water. What shape does the water make? The water will make a sphere. Because the sphere is the thing which encloses a certain volume and has the minimum area. There will be a surface tension that tries to pull, to, tries to make the water form something which has the minimum surface area. It's a big problem, apparently, on the, on the space station that you get these blobs of water that are just hanging around all over the place because they don't fall to the ground. They just blob around there. Um, and uh, anyway, but, but um, so if left to its own devices, water will, for example, if, if, if water is falling in a stream, it will form... Uh, it might be falling a continuous stream, but the the stream will tend to break up into these drops as a result of surface tension. Um, And so that's what's happening in the the circumference of a a splash is you're forming drops because surface tension is causing this water to instead of being sort of this continuous band of water, it's breaking it up into these things which are just these little drops. So that's, that's the main effect that causes sort of splashes to be splashy, so to speak, and have all these different pieces is is this is this instability due to surface tension um now um uh i think this question about um uh w- w- you know this question about exactly what shape that you get from different ways to kind of um, hit uh, uh, you know a bucket of water or something those are difficult things to work out it's only in the last probably 10 years there's been decent ability to, to do mathematical models on a computer and work out the kind of configurations that um, uh, that things like water will make. I mean, there are and it's still a bit of a like, and you know, to what extent do splashes depend on gravity? You know, what do splashes look like um, on uh, uh, you know in space? Um, I don't fully know the answer to this. People, I've been, I've tried for a while to get some astronauts to really try this out and they're like we really don't want to do that because when we make when when you throw a, a big blob of water at something on the space station for example it'll shatter into lots of different drops and then we have to go vacuum up all those drops otherwise those drops will just get all over the place because they don't fall to the ground it's not like you end up with a puddle of water on the floor you end up with little little drops embedded in some you know in some instrument somewhere and it's a big big nuisance so nobody wants to have a splash um, in uh, uh, in in weightless in, uh, conditions, because because you know, have to clean up a lot of mess. So so anyway, that's a little bit of a story about splash. You know the the, the general phenomenon of instabilities in fluids. It's a it's a fairly ubiquitous phenomenon. It causes uh, all kinds of elaborate um, uh, things in the atmosphere, in our atmosphere, in the atmosphere of planets like Jupiter. Um, Uh, For example, if you look at um, even the nuclear explosion that's happening really, really quickly, um, famous picture um, uh, from very, very early, I forget, maybe millisecond, thousandth of a second, maybe less of the the first nuclear explosion shows this amazing, you you might think the nuclear explosion will just go boom and and, um, make a spherical uh, uh, sort of object, but it doesn't. It it has an instability and you see these, these weird shapes that form uh, even at, uh, after a very short amount of time as a result of, of a phenomenon a little different actually that's the um, that's the Rayleigh Taylor instability and I may have the other one the one for splashes might be just a pure Rayleigh instability um, the, uh, uh, in any case there're there these phenomena that that um, that cause fluids, to become unstable in various ways, and the same thing happens when you have fluid turbulence. You just have a fluid flowing quickly; it's making all those little eddies and so on. That's that's happening in the same same kind of way, but but slightly different physics of what's going on. So, question here from Slayer: What sources do you use in keeping up with science news? Um, oh gosh, I don't know. Um, I'm I'm not. Um, um, Somehow I seem to hear about things, but I'm not sure I'm that systematic. I I think there are a few magazines that I've subscribed to. The one that is some um, uh, there's one nice one called Science News, which is a nice some um, nice digest of um, of recent science some um, uh, science things. But usually it's um there's certain kinds of science where it's like we saw a new kind of lemur in Madagascar and it looks like this, and that's kind of a, a who what when where you know, cut and dried kind of science. It's not, you know, there's this big new idea in some mathematical area. It's more like this thing happened. We can write about it. It's a story. Um, One magazine that I have to say I've subscribed to for more than 50 years is a magazine called New Scientist. It's a British science magazine. I'm impressed that it's been going for that long. Um, It's a kind of popular science magazine. I, I always enjoy it because it's it's full of um, it's full of kind of uh, slightly uh, edgy scientific news and and I have to say one feature of of, um, uh, of New Scientist is is sometimes there's, it's sort of a little bit the kiss of death for some kinds of science that if 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 it was written about there it probably won't become real. And there's a tremendous tendency of, of articles to end with, you know, the people who describe this say it could lead to such and such a thing. But it's really interesting in terms of just ideas about different um, uh, different random pieces of science that people are exploring, often more outlandish kinds of things. Uh, so I certainly enjoy that. I mean, there are much better systematic sources. Um, you know, I have, kind of have the unfair feature or advantage that, I, you know, I have a fairly large team that I work with and uh, I know lots of people in the kind of scientific world and people tend to tell me about stuff that that they think uh, I'll find interesting and, and I uh, you know I'll, I'll I'll read lots of things but I'm not a I'm not as good a systematic uh, consumer of of of, um, uh, of sort of science news as, as I might be okay there's a question from Kareem saying that 12 years old how do you set about like doing things like getting a PhD in physics by the time you're 20 and so on. Um, and uh, well, I think, uh, you know, a couple of things to say, you know, there's a certain amount of learning the mechanics of how to do science and calculate things and, and all those kinds of things. I think the most interesting path tends to be, you know, what do you want to figure out? What questions are you trying to ask? There's a certain, you can get a certain distance by just knowing how to answer every exercise in the book. But to go further than that, you have to kind of figure out, well, what exercise would you put there that, that they didn't think of putting there or they didn't put there? You know, what what question do you kind of find really interesting that you can kind of attack? I would also say that, that um, in terms of modern times, you know, tools are really worthwhile things to learn both intellectual tools and more practical kinds of of tools by that i mean like for example you know our Wolfram language system uh you know i've spent most of my life trying to you know make that the best tool i can for figuring out things like things in science and uh you know people who know how to program well in that can just do amazing magic things that um uh, that other people are just like, oh my gosh, how did you do that? I mean, I think my um, uh, my youngest son Christopher happened to learn programming in that when he was probably nine or 10 years old or something. He's very fast. He's faster than I am at writing code. And I'm always amused that, um, what was he showing me just a few days ago? I mean, just all kinds of different, um, uh, different things where you just take some piece of data about the world Oh, that's right. He figured out for the college he's at. He was like, uh, there's a 10-minute job of figuring out. You know, what's the distribution of which courses are being the correlation between departments and which courses being taught online or not. You know, that's a that's a, a sort of a it's it's an easy piece of data science if you know how to do it. Um, and uh, uh, you know, I think the, the 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 thing is to to understand kind of the um, uh, uh, these tools and be really proficient with them so that you know once you have an idea. You can, as directly as possible, go from the idea to yeah, I can write a piece of code. You know, type, type, type. Then something happens. You get a result. You think about it, and so on. And you kind of iterate, inventing things. That's a that's a sort of really critical thing. I mean, the other thing is kind of more intellectual tools of you know what methods and ideas do you learn in modern times? There's just tremendous uh, you know the sort of the, the the strongest paradigm of our time is kind of computation. And just like in the past, it's like, learn all those very elaborate mathematical things. Those are cool and those are worth learning, but really being able to be proficient with all these computational ideas, that's gonna be the future of pretty much every field, including physics, for example. Um, and I think that the, um, uh, uh, you know, I would say that in terms of, you know, do you, do you push really hard to do things, uh, you know, to go through school when you're really young? If you can do it easily, sure, why not? Um, but it depends. I mean, you know, for me, I was really interested in doing research and so on. And I got to the point where I was doing that pretty well by, by the time I was, I don't know, probably 14 or so. And, um, it's like, I can do what I want to do. So let me just go ahead and get to the point of being able to do it, you know, do it for a living, so to speak, as quickly as possible. Uh, you know, I, I, um, at the time, I was mostly interested in do physics research. That was the thing I was interested in. And, you know, I think one of the things that's been fun for me in the rest of my life, so to speak, has been I've been interested in just so many other kinds of things. And, um, uh, you know, it was really good to get to the point where I could, you know, climb a fairly tall tower of doing physics research. But then, by golly, I've learned about a zillion other fields since then And that's been a lot of fun and I think it's in the end, even my big effort in physics in recent times has been made possible because I've learned all these other things and now those things can come back to inform what I'm doing in physics. Um, So, you know, I think that, that for me at that time, I was like, I'm mostly interested in just this one thing of doing physics research. If I'd been interested in lots of things, I probably would have found it really good to just hang out in school for a long time, just taking classes and this and that and the other thing, and just learning all kinds of things. But as it was, I kind of definitely knew I want to do this. You know, okay, fair enough. By the time I was twenty, I was like, okay, I'm now, you know, playing physics professor or whatever. And uh, what am I going to do next? Type thing. And I and I did figure out a little bit of an answer to that, um, which was good. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think that, um, uh, but but as it was up to that time, I was very, very, very focused on this on this one kind of goal. And I think that, that if you're if you're set up that way, then then by all means go do it. Um, if you're if you're like well I don't really know if that's the goal or if I want to learn these kinds of things you kind of have an opportunity when you're young to just like learn all kinds of stuff and nobody's really going to ask you why are you doing that what are you why are you learning about this and that and the other thing it's just like people expect young people just go learn about all kinds of things and you kind of have a free pass to go do that when you're older it's not so easy to spend a bunch of time learning about things I mean I I kind of have a, a, a sort of a cheat way to do that which is I run a company that uh, you know, is applies computation builds tools that apply computation to everything, which means I kind of have an excuse to learn about pretty much anything. And um, I've made use of that as a, as a, as a, you know, I've made use of that and and chosen to learn about all these kinds of things. But that's something not every, you know, that's a, that's a rare kind of job that kind of lets you have the excuse, oh, I'm going to learn about chemistry today. I'm going to learn about you know something about uh, you know molecular biology today, and those are things that are actually important and contribute to to the uh, to sort of the real work that I'm doing. Well, there are questions here, and maybe I should do a different one of these kinds of sessions. There are questions here from Parmenides, great great screen name, um, about um, uh, various kinds of history questions, and I and I realize that I I probably should do some. Some history q and a which perhaps will be less interesting to the young and more interesting to the older um uh the um uh, There's a question about a course at MIT that I've not heard of so therefore i think i'm not don't know about it and uh, you ask about Dana scott I actually happened to hear from him the day before yesterday um so there's uh uh yeah lo- lots of things i uh, um Let's see, Um, somebody, and this is indicating that uh, we don't just have kids on this live stream, Rohit is commenting, the first computer he programmed was a PDP-8, Um, yeah, that that takes one back a bit, Um, cool though. Um, Okay, there's a question here, I'm just gonna answer a couple more from Ozan, Why is computational science not spreading among high schools better? Good question, good question. You know, there've been multiple waves of people trying to sort of teach computing in schools, starting in the 1960s. You know, basic was a language that's actually pretty good that was invented for teaching kids. Logo, another language, Logo kind of became Scratch. Um, You know, various other efforts. Here's what happens. You know, and, and, and we've been involved in this, and I think we've been able to do some really interesting things because with Wolfram Language and with our whole computational language sort of uh, development, you can get to the point where you just use computation as a tool to do whatever you're interested in. You know, you're interested in, in I don't know, geography. You can use it. Because we have all this data about geography, you can immediately study, you know, questions about ge- geographic questions about, you know, which country has the largest lakes or you know, whoever, who knows what it is, which, um, you know, which country has, uh, uh, which region of the world has the most red in its flags or, you know, all these kinds of questions. Or you could answer a question, you know, if you're interested in, um, uh, I don't know, in chemistry, you can answer some question about that. And this is part of, you can just do this computationally. And that's uniquely become possible with the things I've been building over the last third of a century in Wolfram language. That's uniquely something that's possible with our language. Um, What has happened is, and and there's plenty that's being done with sort of teaching uh, computational thinking and so on with with our language, and for people who are interested, like there's a little book that I wrote and it's a MOOC and things like that called Elementary Introduction to Wolf and Language, which is a good place to start and those kinds of things. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, that's a really good idea and it works really well. And and I have kind of a, a hobby project of actually trying it on the ground with actual kids uh, every week, actually. Um, and uh, that's my way of finding out whether I know what I'm talking about, about whether this really works with kids. and and uh, um, it, uh, it works really well. I, recently, I seem to have ended up, um, uh, it's a little bit harder to do in, in a Zoom setting than it is um, uh, in person, but um, uh, it works, works really well. Um, and people get to explore all kinds of really interesting things. Um, and just using computation as a vehicle for exploring things they're interested in, not its computation as a means in itself. It's a little bit like when you learn writing, you know, you can just do classes where you're just learning to write, you know, running to write English or whatever. Um, but at some point you have to start writing about things or it becomes kind of boring. It's like, how many exercises can you do where you're just abstractly writing things? We have to start writing about things. Well, you know, kind of the whole point of sort of having a computational language is it gives you a way to do computation about things. And then you can do all kinds of cool stuff. And that's a really good thing to do uh, with kids, by kids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Okay. But then people get the idea. We've heard computing is important. We've heard that programming is what you do when you do computing. What is programming? Programming is writing those instructions that tell a computer what to do. Oh, you know, you use a programming language to do that. The programming language has variables and loops and it has this and memory locations, all that kind of thing. Well, that's a very different activity from using computation to think about how you solve a problem and, and being a, and, and having the computer automate away all of those things about where's the memory location, what, how do I allocate, you know how do I uh, uh, loop over this this set of variables, things like that. So but what people then think programming and computing is is this very low level thing that's like, how do I set variable values for variables? How do I jump to this part of the program? All that kind of thing. Okay, that activity is very fiddly, and to many people very boring. And I think that um, you know I've written uh, you know it's it's the whole point of having a computer. I think is to let the computer do as much as it can for you, rather than you kind of coming to it and saying, I'm gonna tell you exactly step-by-step how to do your thing as a computer. It's like, you have an idea. It's the job of the language designer to let you as directly as possible express your idea so that a computer can help you with it. And that's kind of what I've spent a large part of my life doing. Really, no other group has been doing this. This is sort of our, our unique thing is this idea of building this sort of full-scale computational language to express things computationally. It's always better. It's always easier to explain to people when you say there are five things like the thing that we've built, but there aren't, it's just this one thing. And uh, you know, but that allows you to do this thing of sort of thinking computationally and using the computer as your kind of assistant to explore the world, so to speak, very powerful thing to do. What people end up doing is teaching coding, which ends up being, Let's you know tell a computer at a low level what to do, okay? Uh, you know, do people care about that? Uh, some people like it. Some people like it a lot. Some people are going to be programmers, and that's fine. Um, and the world needs a certain number of those people. People like me try to automate the the things which are kind of boring to do, so that you can do the interesting things that only you know that where it's a human telling the computer what to do, and the computer is automating doing all the details, so to speak. But but it's like, so, so, you know, it's kind of a question of when you're teaching something, how far back do you go? You know, if you're teaching something like, um, oh, I don't know. um, Well, it comes up with math as well. But I mean, if you're teaching writing, do you explain to people, this is how you create a pen. This is how you take a feather and slice it and put it in ink to make a, a pen to write with. Well, no, you can just assume you have a writing implement and you're just gonna write stuff. Or, you know, if you, um, uh, uh, you know, there's a question of what, where do you start from? And this kind of going backwards and starting from this very low level things that are indeed what professional systems programmers, you know, do is, is probably not the best thing to be teaching kids. So a lot of kids find it kind of dull. And, you know, what's happened like with math education, a lot of that has become very mechanical and people find it kind of dull. And it's a shame because math is really, really interesting. And I think it's really interesting, at least. I think a lot of people would find it much more interesting and much more compelling if they weren't in the details of let's mechanically do something that actually we could get a computer to do much better. So, uh, you know, I think one of the problems is that, that um, uh, sort of the coding type thing tends to be kind of boring, kind of mechanical. We are now in about the fifth iteration of people trying to teach coding in schools, and it seems to never really quite work. It's also the case that, uh, you know, to what extent should learning uh, computational things be like people typically learn, I don't know, musical instruments or something, not as part of the systematic schooling story, but as rather as a, as a kind of um, avocation separate from that, and to what extent should be part of the of the main sort of schooling thing. There's also issues like, um, well, you know, I, I think the, the, the things that we've built with this kind of computational language, um, you know, they should allow one to really bring computation into education, um, and but in the same kind of way that writing is brought into education, not as something where it's all a writing class, but writing is just something you do as part of other things that you're learning about. And I think there's a certain certain level that you have to get to with sort of writing and there's a certain level you have to get to with computational language so that you can go and use it for other things. But that's kind of the pattern that should be followed. Um, And that will really work. And one of these years, one of these decades, that's how people will learn. Um, You know, it's kind of interesting because, you know, we basically, I've been involved for a long time in building the technology for this. The mechanics of how you actually inject it into the school system that's a big complicated mess because there's a complicated ecosystem of, well, you know, if you're going to put in a school, there's lots of things kids have to learn because after all, there are these exams they have to take and the exams test them on this and that and the other. And, oh, this isn't something the exams test them in. But you say, well, why aren't there exams that test them in this? Well, that's because people aren't learning this yet. So it's a kind of chicken egg complicated cycle. In some countries, that cycle has been more successfully kind of uh, broken. I mean, one of the things that's a little bit shocking to realize is, you know, public education, you know, where where there's a sort of, the government provides educational uh, for, for people is a hundred and something years old in most countries, some a little bit less, some a little bit more, but it's about a hundred years old, maybe a hundred and, what is it, 140 years old maybe. Um, well, so one of the things that's really interesting is this idea of computation It's the first really fundamental, really broad idea that has come into existence since the beginning of public education. So, you know, everything else, reading, writing, arithmetic type thing, they all existed before when public education was first invented. But computational thinking did not exist at that time. And the question is, is it possible? Is it even possible for something new to be introduced into something that's had this century long kind of uh, uh, sort of development? one hopes so. Um, Otherwise, it's people learning things sort of uh, independent of school. I mean, one of the things to realize that people may know this, but, but, um, you know, many of the hotshot programmers out there, they didn't learn to program in school. They just learned to program. And uh, it's not, they didn't take a class in it. They took no classes in it often, but they're really good programmers and they built really big systems and, and so on. Um, But it's something where it's like, you know, the, the, what you do in school is not necessarily that connected to what you're able to do, uh, you know, as a practitioner of these kinds of things. All right. Well, thanks for coming and uh, see you next week. Bye. You've been listening to the Stephen Wolfram podcast. You can view the full Q&A series on the Wolfram Research YouTube channel. For more information on Stephen's publications, live coding streams, and this podcast, visit stephenwolfram.com.